podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Never had any doubt in this Australian side. They went to Pakistan and they have won the series 1-0. I absolutely was on board from the beginning. I'm joined by Paul Dennett. An expected result, Paul, from Pakistan. Well, mate, to credit you, the, the one thing that I must say is that absolutely at no time did you even cast any doubt about this series going ahead. I remember when everyone else was saying back in December there was no way this series was going ahead, you were saying emphatically, yes, it would, just as you said, Australia was going to be very hard to beat in the World Cup. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah um, I certainly have to eat a bit of humble pie after my <laughs> predictions from the last summer. Um, nothing like setting the bar really low, setting your expectations really low, then you can't be disappointed. But, yes, good morning, Australian cricket fans and just generally cricket fans. Australia beat Pakistan in Lahore by 115 runs on the fifth day to win the series 1-0. It is their first away series win since 2016. It is their first win in the subcontinent since 2011 is their first win in Pakistan since 1998, although that that effectively means we have back-to-back wins in Pakistan because that was the last time we went there. But a a brilliant series by Australia, Paul, and you have to give a lot of credit to the way Australia hung in the whole series. I think one of the stats that's telling is that it's the first away win either on home on um, in Pakistan or on neutral territory for Australia against Pakistan since 2002-03 when the player of the series was Shane Warne. So it's been 20 years when even with Pakistan on neutral territory, we haven't been able to win. Uh, I think this is going to go down as uh, one of the very best Australian series wins in a long time. I think that the the players, I said this on radio last night on SEN, that this is the sort of series that the players, when they retire, will talk about as, as right up there. And look, they just deserve all the credit. We... We'll quibble about the declaration and everything else, but winning solves everything. And Pat Cummins has gone from, um, you know, you couldn't have thought his reputation would get any better. But I'll tell you what, leading Australia to a series win in Pakistan and with the ball averaging about 22 and a half on those wickets. Wow. Um, You know, I've been saying he's building a case to be regarded as a better fast bowler than Glenn McGraw, which I never thought I would say. Geez, he added another plank to that in this in this series. Just phenomenal. I can't speak too highly of him. And, of course, Kawadra as well. We'll, lack, we'll wax lyrical about him during this show, and he deserves it. Yeah, Kawadra's story is particularly beautiful, the fact that he's returned to his home of birth. And I think his contribution of 496 runs at an average of over 160s is one of the great performances I've seen um, since I've been following cricket and also just a just a vital performance. I mean, there's no way Australia would have won this series without Usman Khawaja's um, dominance at the top of the order. Um, I guess let's just go through this final test match. Australia went into the the match with an unchanged 11 
And I think one thing that Pat Cummins did really well in the last two test matches, Paul, was win the toss. Yeah, um, and that can't be understated. We've been not winning the toss in those neutral series. In the last two that were in the UAE, we, we didn't win a single toss. We had to bowl first every single time. And batting first on these pitches is a huge advantage, but um, we deserved it. Now, I, I, I think that this series was a triumph for Pakistan in so many ways. They did so many things well, and it was it was wonderful. And I really want to emphasize, emphasize that. But the pitches were poor. I heard Gideon Haig last night saying they didn't provide an even contest between bat and sleep. And I think he's right. Um, they doctored the pitches to try to uh, negate the Australian uh, fast bowling power, and they did so to the detriment of the spectacle. So if Australia win the toss a couple of times, good on them. Yeah, I can't disagree. You can exactly right. I mean, it could have been the other way, though, if Pakistan had batted <laughs> first. Uh, could have been pretty ugly. But, look, Australia batted first. They made 391 Usman Khawaja made 91. Steve Smith made 59. They came together when the score was eight for two. And Australia in quite a bit of trouble at that point. And I think uh, Smith and Khawaja played really well on that first day. And, uh, yeah, you know, Steve Smith averaging over 50 this series. I think, you know, the combination of he and Khawaja on these wickets was, you know, really enjoyable to watch the way they manipulated the Pakistan spinners and were able to, you know, play against the reversing ball. They had a lot of skill. Yeah, it was um, it was heartening to see Steve Smith pass 53 times. Everyone's talking about the fact that he didn't go on to get 100, but I think that I'd, I'd rather take the positives. And it was, you know, I still get a thrill um, watching him bat. He, he really had to work hard for his runs, but they were um, important runs. And... Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm intrigued as to what he's going to deliver in the next couple of years. Yeah, and then um, Travis Head made a, a handy 26 when he came in uh, to replace Smith. But then, you know, I was really um, loved the partnership between Cameron Green and Alex Carey. They came together when the score was five for 206. And at that point, you know, had Australia collapsed from there, we would have been in all sorts of trouble in this test match. But then Green made 79, Carey 67. Those two put on 135. That got Australia up to 341 when um, Carey was dismissed. And that you know then they were able to go on and make 390. But love the way Green batted. Also, I think Carey... Um, the way he bats does suit this subcontinental cricket with his little dinks and uh, sweeps and, yeah, uh, yeah, really, really thrilling stuff. Oh, I think that's a really good point, that the way that Carey and Green batted, even late on day one, but especially in the first session on day two, is a, a really underrated part of why Australia won this Test Series. Because, as you said, we were sort of on the brink then of, um, of, of collapsing and Australia may well have gone on to lose the match, but... Not only did they survive, but they scored at, I think, over three and over in that second morning. And it was, I was, I was really upbeat. And I, when I watched it, I thought, wow, that's, that's exactly what I kind of hoped. And for, for two players yet to still prove themselves at test level, I mean, that in, in Green's case, that's because um, he's so young and so much to prove. But um, yeah, it was, it was wonderful to see their potential really shining through. And Carey, for the second time now, has, is really starting to put to bed all of the doubters, and I was starting to be one of them. Um, so, yeah, I'm delighted uh, delighted for him and regretting ever doubting him. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I wonder where 
I wonder what sort of how Green's going to really handle spinning conditions because I guess the ball didn't really turn a lot in this series. So I think we'll really see how Green handles the spin when we go to Sri Lanka in June, July. Um, but on these sort of flat pitches, you know, Green's just so patient, isn't he, Paul? He's a classical batter. Even though he's batting at six, he's happy to take his time. He is, and I, I still think I'd, I, I think he could bat a little bit more quickly. I think that he's that good that he doesn't need to be quite so patient. But I don't want to uh, quibble with him because he's possibly the most exciting player in, in world cricket at the moment in terms of the, what he might actually deliver. It's a good point though because they're all going to be up against it in Sri Lanka. This is going to be a that'll be a very very different series. Questions will come around about Travis Head. Um, you know, there's a precedent in Sri Lanka when Australia were there in 2016, where Kawaja came in on the back of the most unbelievable run of form, failed in the first two tests and was dropped because they thought thought he couldn't handle the pitches. Well, Head has not really looked so good on these pitches, despite looking really good in the Ashes. Um, I wonder what the selectors are going to do with him. Mm, especially if someone like Glenn Maxwell is available for selection, would you rather have someone a bit more adept at taking on the spinners? Uh, but yeah, probably too early to put a, a line through Head just yet. Um, so Australia make 391, Shaheen Afridi, 4 for 79, bowled well. Nazim Shah, I thought, bowled excellently, 4 for 58. I mean, he's, he's such a, he's a young, very young guy, under 20, and he's got a huge future ahead of him. So I thought yeah, 391. I was just going to say, I think I criticised them for picking him. Um, can't remember when, but I, I, I thought, yeah, he's too inaccurate. Good potential, but at the moment, too much of a risk. Well, he's proven me wrong. Uh, he bowled really, really well in this series. It looks like Pakistan have found yet another fine, fast bowler. But again, taking um, uh, a wicket off a no ball, um, it was just, why do they do it? I mean, the, the you know, Sean Tate's their newly appointed bowling coach. I always say this about bowling coaches. First thing to do is get out in the nets and teach them all to get their front foot behind the line. True. Uh, so... Australia make 391, and I actually didn't think that was a winning score at first. And Pakistan started really well on the second and third day. They were at 1.2 for 170, and then when Azhar Ali was out, they were three for 214. Shafiq had made 81, Azhar Ali 78, Babarazam made 67. But then there was just the most stunning collapse at the end of day three. Pakistan lost seven for 20 out of nowhere. Mitchell Stark took four for 33. Pat, Pat Cummins in an exceptional spell, five for 56. I was actually stunned watching that spell on the third afternoon. It just <laughs> didn't seem like it was possible for Australia to run through them so quickly. It was so um, glorious. It was funny because I'd, um, uh, I'd had to pause the cricket to do something else and then I was going to watch it on delay on KO without knowing the score. But I made the mistake of looking at my phone, not looking at anything, but I just saw that I had no messages. And I thought, oh, why did I say that? If there'd been a collapse, I would have got, um, you know, loads of messages from various different people. What I didn't realise was that the collapse was just about to occur. I switched across, watched it on, um, on KO and thought to myself, I reckon I'm about at the point where I looked at my phone. So I'm kind of in the clear now it's possible there could be a massive collapse. And I started giggling because, you know, that's not going to happen. And then bang, seven for 20. <laughs> oh, it was amazing. Um, my friend from Singapore was watching, literally said he went and had a shower, came back and the innings was over. He said, what, what the hell happened? 
I'm not exactly sure what happened. I mean, the ball started to reverse a little bit. I thought Pat Cummins and Stark bowled some absolute jaffers. Pat Cummins seems to be able to get get life out of pitches where there isn't any. I've seen him do it at the SCG in the past on a dead wickets there. I think it's the way he sort of, I don't know, the way he hits the seam and the way, I don't know, the way he releases the ball. Sometimes I think he sort of wobbles the seam a bit and you get some variation. But, I mean, that was spellbinding stuff and it just broke the game open. Yeah, and I think one of the things is that maybe with with reverse swing as it was in this match where it was, in this whole series, it was present from time to time. It was never what you'd call like that lethal, like that wacker um, was in footage of the ball just hooping. But I think if you could manage to get it to new batters, uh, then it suddenly became really, really dangerous that the new batters really found it difficult to handle. And you got that combination of high-quality, surgeon-like bowling by the Australians in the, sec- in the first innings of the second test, and you got it in that first innings of, of, the, of the third test here. And um, Cummins, uh, Rick Finlay sent out a tweet showing his um, statistics from every series he's ever played, and he made the point he has never bowled, he's never had a bad series with the ball. And you look at it, the, the only two times he's averaged over 30 were both in um, really, really trying conditions – one was when um, Australia was in the UAE last time and he averaged 32, which was uh, superb. And one was back in India in 2016-17 in his second ever series where he averaged 30, where it wasn't really a fast bowler's um, uh, situation. You look at almost any other career of any player, there's always series where they have a low series. You know, Steve Smith will have a series where he averages 21 or Glenn McGraw will have a series where he averages 38 or something like that. Cummins is just unbelievable. Yeah, I was I was on the radio a couple of days ago, and I was saying I think we forget how good Cummins is. That you know all these tributes to Shane Warne going on at the moment, and, and I think it's it's actually a, a good reminder to really appreciate Cummins right now. Like he is, as you say, challenging to be one of the the greatest fast bowlers of all time. His statistics are incredible, and I, I think sometimes I don't know we forget just how good he is. Not only that. Having made that controversial decision to declare, which if I'd made it and then Pakistan had got to that point after, after day four, I would have been frantic. I would have been thinking, here I am. I'm about to gift the series potentially to this opposition after 15 days of toil. I will never get over this. Something happened early on day five. There's almost a run out or something like that. And he smiled with genuine sort of pleasure to say, well, that was close. And, and I just thought, how can he be smiling genuinely in this situation? He is a better man <laughs> He's a better man than me. Uh, so, yeah, not only is he a fa- fantastic fast bowler, but the image of this Australian side, the way that they're playing, um, is the best spirited in terms of good humoured and making me proud to be an Australian of any Australian side I have ever seen, even more so than the, you know, when, when Mark Taylor was captain. This is, uh, you know, he's got it all, Pat Cummins. Yeah, I think that might have been a nervous smile you're referring to, but the fact that he was able to get out that killer smile and just disarm everyone with his you know, good looks. Um, yeah, certainly um, <laughs> certainly worked on you for sure. Um, so Australia go out with a lead of over 123 and then uh, Warner and and Kawaj get us off to a great start. They put on 96. Warner makes 51. Kawaj was bowled off a Nazim Shah no ball that you spoke about. And I think Kawaj deserves a bit of luck having been dismissed in the 90s twice. Lasagna, Labashain made 36. 
Steve Smith made 17, but in those 17 runs, he broke a significant record, being the fastest player in history to 8,000 test runs, beating Kumar Sangakkara by one run. Just phenomenal stuff. Yeah, and to your point before of appreciating uh, what's in front of you, it's a, it's a great time to be appreciating Steve Smith. That uh, I mean, it won't be that many year, more years before his career will be in the background as well. And to have a player 8,000 runs and still be averaging over 60, as brilliant as Labuschagne is, his average has now dropped to about 54 or thereabouts. And Steve Smith, even though he hasn't had the best run, to still be averaging over 60 after 8,000 runs, fantastic. Uh, you know, uh, the, you run short of the adjectives, really. Mm. And I feel really fortunate that Cricket Unfiltered's first episode was just a few days before Steve Smith made his first test century in 2013. So I've been privileged to follow his career very closely because of this podcast. And, um, you know, just look, the fact that he was able to go to the subcontinent and be the second leading run scorer behind Kawaja just shows that not many Australian batters are better overseas than they are at home. But Smith is almost that. He's almost a better tourist. You look at our last tour of England in 2019, you know, there is two best series and, you know, they're, they're both away tours. So they're two best series in the last few years and they're both away tours. Yeah. And these next couple of away tours are going to be quite significant that, um, because it'll be very interesting to see how, how he plays in Sri Lanka, whether he's a little bit more aggressive on those pitches and then, the massive series coming up against India away um, will be a, I wouldn't say a career-defining series for him, but it will go um, some way towards where he ultimately sits in terms of um, right up there as, as as how high he is up in the order of the best batters of all time. I heard our friend Peter Lawler speaking on the SEN commentary, saying that he thinks maybe uh, Smith's had a slight dip in test form because he was a bit worn out by the sort of suspension and then the ashes and the, the World Cup and the ashes that followed. But I actually don't think it's that at all. I think it's actually counted against Steve Smith, the fact that Australia have played a lot less test cricket in the last two years because of COVID and cancelled tours because I think Smith is a rhythm batter and I, I think he gets in a ri- sort of test match rhythm where he, he can – and we've seen it in this series, he can bat for hours and he, he seemingly never gets bored or frustrated. So I just think it's actually if we play more test cricket, Steve Smith will just get into better form. Well, not only that, from a, um, a practical point of view, um, he has lost several years – of his absolute batting pride um, through the suspension in South Africa, which, you know, it's his fault, but uh, we've talked before that it was more of a lack of leadership rather than anything genuinely evil that he did. And then the, the COVID pandemic, he has been robbed of how many test matches might he otherwise have played when he is, you know, in that sweet spot of the, of the best batting form of his career. Yeah, and speaking of best batting form of their career, Usman Khawaja finished Australia's second innings 104 not out. It was his 12th test century. He now averages over 47 at test level. He's played 49 test matches for 12 test centuries. He scored four test centuries in 2022 since being um, recalled to the side. Just a really outpour. There was a really strong outpouring of emotions from Kawaja when he made his hundred. Obviously, those two nineties would have been weighing on him. But just magical stuff. Another fine innings. He, he was in such control, and you know he right throughout the series has just 
added stability that Australia really needed in their top order. Well, he's taken things to a new level. Now, you might follow me on Twitter. Well, I know you do follow me on Twitter. You might actually read my tweets, so you might know this already. But here's a trivia question for you and for the listeners. Um, what do these 21 names, uh, what significance do these 21 names have with relation to Usman Khawaja? Kepler Vessels, Greg Matthews, Graham Yellup, Charlie McCartney, Mark Warrior in Chapel, Michael Slater, Ian Redpath, Mark Taylor, David Boone, Simon Cuttage, Justin Langer, Norman O'Neill, Bill Woodfull, Damien Martin, Arthur Morris, Dean Jones, Lindsay Hassett, Bob Simpson, David Warner and Bill Laurie. Their test averages are all lower than Khawaja's. They are, and they were all higher than Khawaja's before he made his return to the Australian side in the Ashes. So he has jumped 21 places. Now, I cut it off saying you've got to have played 50 innings or more. Um, so he's gone from, um, what's that, 30, um, 35th on the um, Australian list. He's now 14th of all time. And that average of 47.25, that's starting to be, you know, almost into the that echelon of where you're starting to talk about greatness. So I... I was very, very pleased to see him returning to the Australian side, but I must say, I didn't see this coming. This has been, uh, it's taken to a level that I didn't know he had. Yeah, and, you know, people talk about succession planning and we're talking about maybe what's going to happen with David Warner. I could see a situation now where actually David Warner's the next opener to go and Kawaj is still there. It's possible. I hope that they both stay around for a, a while. Um, I hope that Will Pukowski forces his way into the side as well and, and you know, maybe bats, as you've been calling for it, um, somewhere in the middle order. But I, I, as I always say, I think that the, the, the importance of succession planning is, is overrated. Pick the best players that you've got in front of you. And as we saw with Scott Boland, the players can, um, if, they've got, if they're good enough, they can come into the test matches and perform straight away. So I think that the succession planning is a fun thing to talk about, but I think it's more... Uh, more re- more necessary at the corporate level rather than at the sporting level. Yeah, and I just want to make it very clear: I'm not suggesting David Warner should be dropped anytime soon. Um, yeah, just want to make that very clear to David Warner's friends and family out there who are listening. Um, but yeah, I could just see a situation now where Kawaja maybe stays on a bit longer. Um, so this is where we get into some funny stuff. So all of a sudden, Australia pulled the pin about 15 minutes into the last session on day four, and it was going to be a long session. There was lots of overs left, and their lead was only 350. Now, I think you were looking at the calculation at the time. What was the run rate then Pakistan needed to win the series? Australia set Pakistan a target of 351 off 121 overs at 2.9 runs per over. Now, with the slow over rates, they ended up probably not quite getting that many overs in. So it probably ended up being roughly three. So I just thought that was an incredibly silly declaration at the time because I thought why after going and busting your ass for 14 days would you open the door to a team that have batted so well on the fourth and fifth days in the first two test matches? I thought Pat Cummins took an insane gamble with that declaration. I agree. I mean, we have to acknowledge that it, it paid off. So mm, uh, winning, as I said, sort of papers over everything. And also, I will say that I admire the courage of it. And um, few captains in the past might have done that. And it's, it shows cricket being played in the right spirit, in the sense that after those pitches were prepared, then, um, look, I think if Bill Laurie was captain, he might have batted and declared it sort of T on day five and set Pakistan 1,200 uh, 1, to win. <laughs> um, so, 
uh, good on him for having the gumption to do it. But I agree with you. Uh, at, I think I looked at the um, the odds on at stumps on day four, and all three options were roughly about the same. So, based on the market, you'd say it was basically a one in three chance that Cummins was going to have gifted the series to Pakistan. Now he'd say, "Well, like, mate, they didn't even come close." But um, I'll tell you what, he would have been a bit nervous um, at points early on on day five. As I always say, the thing that I object to is that it was just not necessary. You can have your cake and eat it too. To say, well, we needed as much time as possible to bowl them out. In the last 20 overs of the Australian innings, in those two sets of 10, so the second last set of 10 and the final set of 10 overs, Australia scored one for 46 in each of them. Now, they began those final 20 overs with a lead of 258. So they had within them the wherewithal to say, let's play T20 cricket. If we lose three or four wickets, we can slow down. We're not going to collapse. And even if we do, we'll already be setting them a monumental target. They could have scored much, much more than 92 in those 20 overs. And then declared at roughly the same time or a little bit later and set Pakistan a target that they couldn't chase. And it wouldn't have made Australia's chances of winning any less because most likely um, there were many options where had Pakistan batted all the way through for a draw, they possibly would have won because they would have got the runs in time. So um, it's not as though you have to say, oh, you know, it's all defensive. You could still be just about as aggressive um, and just make sure that Pakistan uh, couldn't win the series. And the notion, oh, you've got to dangle the carrot, is idiotic. Um, and I'm not saying his declaration was idiotic. I'm saying that people who think that you've got to give the opposition a bit of a sniff, that that helps you win. I just think I, I reject that notion outright. I think there's no evidence for it whatsoever. Yeah, look, I think on the latter point, I actually think we saw on the fifth day that dangling the carrot did force Pakistan's hand a little bit and they did play a few more shots than they might normally have played. So I think that... I disagree I actually, with that. They what? played a well, few shots towards the end because they were being... Reckless. They I weren't mean, even, going to win at the end. Even Azarali's um, sweep shot to get out offline, you know, maybe he just plays that back down the pitch if he's I think just that playing Pakistan out for a draw. Was, Pakistan were too defensive on the final day. I think that in the first couple of hours, that's where they lost the game. Australia bowled very well. There's no doubt about that. But Pakistan was so defensive, and I think their attitude was, as cricket is always, almost superstition requires them to say, Let's just bat normally. We won't even dare think about chasing the runs because somehow that will cause us to lose. They got becalmed and therefore eventually that's what, you know, Nathan Lyon loves it when he's bowling to batters who aren't really taking him on. They got becalmed and that's what got themselves into trouble. If they had come out on the final morning and said, we're going to play with some judicious aggression here, then I think that they would have gone a long way to, for them to either win the game or draw the game. I agree. I think they started the fifth day with more of an intention to let's get to safety first, and then if we're close enough, we'll have a dip. But I still think there was – because they were like none for 70 going into that last day, and at that point I thought they could really challenge the score. Um, I guess one thing, I guess, with the declaration, maybe both of us have to own up to is the fact that we're on the other side of the world, not near the pitch. I actually think it was probably harder to score – on that pitch on the last day than we probably know. Like, I think, it, you know, it wasn't an easy pitch to bat on, much harder than the first two test matches. Yeah, but I think we know that. I mean, I'm not saying that it would have been um, if they'd gone at that point when they got two for 92 off 20. I'm saying if they had batted expansively and, and got, um, 
seven for 150 off, or seven for 120 off 20, or, or something like that, just a little bit more. Mm. I, I don't think that's um, testing the bonds of reality. To do that Agreed. and just bat a few more overs and just change the, the equation. So instead of Pakistan being set 2.9 or 3 per over, they're set 3.6 or 3.7 per over. I'm not asking for a, you know, things move very quickly at that stage. You only got to um, score a few more runs, chew up one or two more overs, and, and, and the calculus shifts substantially. So, yeah, um, if they're listening to this, which I'm sure they are, and they're saying, well, you go out there and bat aggressively on that pitch, I understand that. But I'm not saying they needed to go at eight and over. I'm saying they could have just gone a bit faster. Yeah, I'm with you. I would have been more comfortable with a declaration around 400, even if you kept it under 400 to dangle the carrot, you know, 380, 390. But I would have liked a few more, especially because Swepson and Lyon had struggled throughout the series. So on the last day, Paul, what I thought was noticeable as opposed to some other fifth days, I think Australia, what they you know messed up at Headingley. Then there was those two test matches against India, the SCG, the Gabba. Then there was the SCG this year where England saved the match. I, I felt that on this occasion, Australia kind of got the rub of the green, not that they didn't play well, not that they didn't bowl well, not that they didn't deserve it, but just those a few little things seemed to go their way. So the first one was Azarali being given out um, just before lunch off the bowling of line where he swept a ball and it was given not out and then they referred it upstairs. And as the ball passes the bat, there was the faintest wobble on Snicko. But I'm not sure whether the ball hit the bat and that wobble was bat, bat hitting um, the ball. I think it was the right decision. I think it was a brave decision. It was a line ball decision and I know that, Plenty of people disagree. I thought it was telling that uh, uh, both Bazard Khan in commentary thought it was the right decision. Um, and I think um, Wacky Yunus kind of didn't have much of a problem with it either. I, I think it's overstated how much spikes and, you know, the rubbing of the keeper's spikes on the ground can cause. That there's They have been trained fairly well to recognise what looks like a spike coming from a nick. And I know that just before the ball reached the bat, there was a little bit of um, noise. And I know that the spike, uh, in inverted commas, when the ball passed the bat was not immensely bigger. But to me, it was just sufficiently bigger. And the fact that it was absolutely simultaneous with the bat, that looking at that and I'm, you know, I'm being unbiased because I, you know, I, I had a bit of money on the game. I was going to win money either Pakistan or Australia winning. It didn't really worry me. Um, uh, I can say I thought that's out. I think I, I'm pretty sure um, that that is the right decision. I, I think he has hit the ball. And I think based on the way that the the wording of the DRS is written, that the third umpire had no choice but to give it out. And I think it was the right decision. Yeah, I'm not saying the decision was bad uh, because when you had the picture of the ball looking like it was brushing the bat and then the spike at the same time or the wobble, it was it was hard to not see them correlating because it did look like the ball was hitting the bat. So um, yeah, I, I, just so I agree. Think, though, it, was, it, I, it was the rub of the green. Yes, in another, yeah. I, I think I thought all along he was going to call it not out, exactly. uh, but I think he talked himself into giving it out. And I think he uh, look credit to him, and I think credit to the umpires in this whole series. You know, home umpires uh, and credit to DRS that uh, they did a very good job. Mm, I, I show, I, so I skip past something, but Cameron Green got the first wicket of the day, getting um, Abdullah Shafiq caught behind for 27. And uh, another 
really good wicket from Green. He started that fifth day bowling really well. Um, probably a, a better option than starting with Stark because, you know, Green will just sort of be a bit tighter. And, and just, you know, that first wicket, that was vital. You know, opened the Very door. Very good point. And credit to Cups, Cummins as captaincy for starting with, with Green because it was what we needed. We needed really, really tight bowling. And he was getting a nice amount of reverse swing, tailing it in and tailing it in and tailing it in, switched the ball around the other way, held its line, maybe even went slightly away. Really important wicket. And uh, it reminds me of when Australia had, you know, McGrath and Warren and McGrath and Gillespie and, and you know, the captains would just start a day with those two, you know, say Warren and McGrath or Warren and, or McGrath and Gillespie, knowing that they're not going to be able to get away. All of a sudden, you know, half an hour will go by, hardly any runs will be scored and the pressure will be on the batting side. Indeed. And, and I, I think that's where Pakistan missed the trick, that it was going to be difficult because Australia were bowling very well. They were probing. Cummins bowled a really good spell as well. It was not going to be easy to score aggressively, but I think Pakistan abandoned all intention of scoring in that early part. And they, if, they'd had, if they'd had a bit of bravery and said, right, let's just play a few shots and they'd have maybe a tiny slice of luck, suddenly Australia would have been well and truly on the back foot. They'd have had to revert to defensive fields. Lyon doesn't like it, but he's under pressure. The game could have gone differently, but the Australians did bowl especially well in those early overs, albeit only picking up that one early wicket. Imam Al-Haq played really well for 70. He was the third wicket to go, got a very fine um, inside edge and was caught a bat and pad. Um, so, yeah, that was a big wicket for Lyon. Again, I wouldn't say the rubber the green went astray's way, but that there was only a feather on that one. Yep. Um there was, but it was enough. It was enough. I think there's no, yeah, that was, that was definitive, but you're right. Um, it was only a feather. So forward alarm uh, was LBW to Cummins for 11. And he um, did a Shane Watson style review with the ball cannoning into like the middle of middle stump, but still sent the referral upstairs. So that meant Pakistan only had one referral left and it should not be forgotten. Muhammad Rizwan scored a dashing, dashing century on the last day of the last test. He was not just a big wicket, but also a potential match winner because he seemed like the sort of bloke who can't bat for draws. He would have just, um, you know, he would have just kept going for the win to the end. So Rizwan gets struck in front by Cummins. He's given out for a duck. He doesn't refer it because there's only one left. Farwad Alam's just burnt one. But if he had referred it, he would have been it would have been shown that he'd outside off stump and he would have been given not out. It was a bizarre series of events that where not only did it forward alarm review, um, when it was shown, I don't think it was, I don't think it was hitting middle. I think it was hitting off, but it was certainly crashing into the stumps. He still walked off angry as if to say that the technology has got it wrong. And yet live, it, it looked out <laughs> and on replay, it confirmed it, it was out. He thought that it was moving enough that it was going to miss off. It just wasn't. Um, strange that, barbarism at the at the non-strikers end allowed him to make the review and then bizarre that he didn't um insist on Rizwan reviewing and bizarre that Rizwan didn't know and I think it um, speaks to what is the one um if you didn't know anything about a person and you want to know whether they're good at cricket what's the one question you can ask it is do they not intuitively understand the law about the ball can't you can't be RWW if you hit outside the line playing a stroke and if they understand that they're not going to be any good at cricket um, <laughs> it just happens time and time again. Bowlers appealing vociferously for ones that are pitching, hitting, hitting considerably outside the line. It's like they just 
they go, oh, yeah, that's right. And they, they even did it in commentary the other day, the, um, uh, getting confused about it. So it was a weird, weird thing because it just didn't look out live at all. And I think they kind of got confused because they're thinking, oh, yeah, that looks like one of those where it's um, he's inside edged it, but the batter knew that it hit him on the foot. And so he said, oh, yeah, I'm probably done here. But um, it, it, Barbara Azam should have just said, mate, refer it because the rest of the batters can't bat. Um, so from there, Australia uh, just ran through Pakistan pretty much. Barbara Azam was out. Very good catch by Steve Smith to his left for 55. The tail, they didn't really wag. They played a few shots. Um, I actually liked it, the fact that the tail just kind of kept going for the win, even though it was virtually impossible. Um, so I liked it end- as well because I'm an Australian cricket fan, and I liked it as well because it was entertaining. But I, I just found it um quite idiotic the shots that they played they realistically weren't going to win at that point um and for um Hassan Ali I mean (laughs) to slog Nathan Lyon back over his head next ball reverse two balls later when they bring long on up go okay I'm going to hit you for six and then um play an enormity slog somehow have it hit your helmet and wrap around and eventually fall back onto the stumps in a country where, you know, they don't always take kindly to people who don't seem to show pride in the national jumper. I, I don't understand that. Like, there's only two hours to bat. You're almost certainly not going to survive and score it and save it and for a draw. But why not try? Just block. You never know. Yeah. Well, what about uh, David Warner's Hassan Ali-style celebration uh, when Hassan Ali got out? Did you see Warner do it from yeah. short leg with the... Um... Do you see? Do you think that's amusing or a little bit of the ugly Australian? Uh, I think it's amusing and a little bit cheeky, um, but I don't. I don't think it's ugly. Um, uh, Rouge Bumtaz in commentary, commentary timed it perfectly. She did the boom uh, on the replay as he did it, and um, I think Swepson did it as well. With the, he mocked, the, mimicked the um, uh, the Afridi celebration when he took the great catch on the boundary to dismiss him a few overs later. Um, I I didn't love it. I could do without it. I don't think that it came from a bad place, though, and it was funny. So Pakistan were all out for 235. Pat Cummins took the last wicket fittingly. So he finished He finished with the figures of three for 23. And Nathan Lyon, um, five for 83. So a very much, you know, much needed five-wicket haul for Lyon. You could see how happy he was to finally bowl Australia to victory on the last day. And Jeff Lemon had a really good stat that in, I think, Nathan Lyon's test career, he's had 10 or 11 opportunities. Now, I think he's had 11 opportunities to bowl Australia to victory on the fifth day. And of those 11, Lyon's done it four times. Um, and this is one of them. So tremendous stuff from Nathan Lyon. Um, he deserved a bit of luck and he certainly got it. Yeah, good on him. Um I'm really happy for him. You know, we've discussed his form during this series. He's, uh, his overall record is not going to look great. I think what was his average is 40, 44 or something like that. Um, um, but, you know, he did it when it counted on the final day. Got us a famous series win. So, um, yeah, you can't be too critical. 44.91. 12 wickets at 44.91. A strike rate of 109.5. He would say, mate, who cares? Um, we've won the, the Benno Carter Trophy, and I played a major role on the on the decisive day. Good on him. Yeah, good on the goat. Um, kudos to him. So Pat Cummins was man of the, player of the match for his eight wickets, and um, player of the series. Not surprisingly, was 
Usman Khawaja for his 496 runs. Um, yeah, I've got to say it was just a, a brilliant night. At, at the same time Australia won, something happened at the SCG about AFL and everyone was talking about that. But all I cared about was the fact that Australia finally won a series overseas. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, um, uh, no, it's a pretty amazing achievement of Buddy Franklin to score a 1,000 goals. I think he's only the seventh in VFL oh, AFL history to do so. So it's a mm, it's a special. huge achievement. But I, I I was a little disappointed to open up the Herald this morning and see that the first four articles were about that. Um, when this, you know, it's a, a much more of a global game. Uh, I, I think it was a a more significant achievement. But that's the you know that's the way the cookie crumbles. And I guess something that tweaked in me was you know how how well I remember that series in 1998 where Australia got the win there last time. Um, so, yeah, it was just a, just nice to nice sort of for Australia to get back-to-back wins on the subcontinent and, and congratulations to Cummin for that fine leadership. Um, his bravery paid off. I do have um, a couple of um, can't-let-it-goes from the Test match. Can mm-hmm. I just throw them at you? So one of them was... Um, apparently there was a directive from the Pakistan cricket board to the commentary team on TV not to call the pitches flat all the time. And then audio emerged from this last test of Mike Kasparic uh, in commentary saying the pitches were flat and then quickly backtracking like the reverse lights came on. It was beep, 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 great batting tracks. You know, he he, he, like he did a 180 so fast, Paul. Um, I think there was definitely a directive. Um, do you, what I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there was a directive, but what uh, evidence is there that there was? Well, he said the pitches were flat, and then as soon as the word came out of his mouth, he was like, I mean, like, uh, beautiful batting tracks. But I think the key also on these flat wickets, sorry, on these good batting sh- strips of what we've seen here, beautiful batting strips. Right. A couple of guys on Twitter, I sent out a tweet saying, that everything about this series except one thing was wonderful. And I really meant it. I, I think this was a joyous series, the best spirit of cricket I've seen in a long time, thoroughly delightful for Australia to finally be back in Pakistan, one of the great cricketing nations. It's been a tragedy that the terrorism occurred and that they haven't had test cricket there for so long. And I, I know Australia's not the first country back, but it's the first time we are back. So, um, And the crowds were fantastic. I think the cricket was tough and strong. But... To say that the pitches were terrible is just honest. And we, if, if, if anyone's from Pakistan listening and hasn't heard us before, go back through our back catalogue and you'll hear Menas and me absolutely giving it to Australian pitches over the years. The 2017-18 MCG and SCG pitches we gave it to. Numerous big, back, big bash pitches. Um, Menas has even been basically censured in commentary for bagging the SCG pitch. Um, so we have got um, form on the board for not being afraid to criticise pitches. And these pitches were terrible. They were the one blight on the series. You imagine if they had prepared bouncier pitches. I'm not saying Australian pitches, but just pitches with a bit of life and a bit of carry. Um, it might have been one of the all-time great series. And God knows, Pakistan might have won it. Um, you know, with Shaheen Shah Afridi and uh, Nassim Shah on some pitches with some life, get the better of conditions. They might have run through Australia. So uh, the cricket was hard to watch my friends all turned off at various stages during the series i found that i had to pause it and then uh watch it fast forwarding between the balls it was 
one of the more it's close to the bo- most boring series I've ever seen in terms of contest between bat and ball. And I hate saying that because I loved every single part of it other than that. And if the commentators were instructed to not criticize the pitches, well, that's disappointing, um, but not unexpected. And if I ever got a chance to be commentating, I would certainly do whatever my paymaster said as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Paul's got form for that as well. Um, look, have I? I, 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 I want to have form for that, but I don't think I actually do. <laughs> Anyone listening? Well, you might soon. Um, I, I just was disappointed that they actually didn't make them turn more. Like I understand them going, okay, we don't want to play into the, Australian fast bowlers' hands and give them life wickets with life. That's fine, but then you got to go the other way, and they like they didn't even turn. Yeah, but historically they haven't turned that much, and a lot of people are saying, "But this is what Pakistan wickets are." Um, And I'd say, well, a not necessarily because Rami's Raja has admitted that they doctored them, and b if this is sort of not too dissimilar from what Pakistan wickets have been. Now's the time to change it because it's not good enough. Test cricket is not going to flourish in this country if that's the pitches you prepare. Um, famously, when Dwight D. Eisenhower, when he was American president, saw an Australia-Pakistan game in the 50s there, I think that Pakistan went and scored at like one for a hundred or four for a hundred off a hundred overs or something during the day. And he like it was the most boring day in history. It's been it's been long, slow, hard cricket on um, in red ball cricket in Pakistan forever, seemingly. That's not good enough. Change it. Change the pitches. Mm. And my other can't let it go from the test match is former New South Wales cricketer Brad McNamara, who used to run the Channel 9 commentary team, laying into the SEN commentary on Twitter. And basically it was a square up from McNamara because Jeff Lamb and and had written an article criticising the Channel 9 commentary team a few years ago. But it was... They were very unedifying tweets by Bragdon McNamara. They weren't professional. Um, they certainly reeked of uh, just looking for a square up against some people he didn't like. And I had to say, I found the whole thing quite distasteful. But at the same time, I kind of inserted myself into the, the Twitter action. I like the fact that you invited um, Bragdon McNamara on the show. Uh, it was good, good initiative. Yes. <laughs> he didn't accept. I invited him on to, for the commentary critique segment and he was like pretty rude about it, I've got to say. Yeah, I, I don't think he was being rude to you. I think he was just saying I wouldn't waste my time talking about these commentators. I think that's what the essence of it was. Although he probably, if he was unintentionally rude to you as well, I'm sure he was happy about that. Um, I Look, I think that not only is it, there a bit of a square up for that Lemon article, but I think also there's that past player feeling of if you haven't played the game at the highest level, then um, you know you really can't commentate. To which Lemon should say to him, how many test matches did you play, champ? <laughs> it's true. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I just found the whole thing, like, I don't know. I, I've actually thought his, um, his actual – the actual commentary on SEM was brilliant throughout the whole um, – series so congratulations to SCN I've, I enjoyed it I know look I'm biased because a lot of our friends are commentators on that network and we're over there but I loved it so I think it was actually false what McNamara was saying I enjoyed it so I didn't get to hear much of it because as I said I was pausing and watching it on KO and everything else so um that was how I but I, I did hear an extended session of it at one point and you know I enjoy I enjoy Collins I enjoy Lemon I enjoy Lawler um uh, I enjoyed um Kadich on there as well. 
I'm probably forgetting a couple, but um, I, you know, Barrett Sunder Racing, our good friend, yeah, Barrett, yeah. Oh, um, I love Barrett, and I think that the more commentators that you have that haven't played the game at the highest level is generally a sign that. The, 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 they've had to work very hard to get a commentary gig because the the bias is to pick X players. So anyone who makes it to the top, not having played high level cricket, is usually a bloody good commentator. Alrighty, so just before we wrap this up, a quick look at the series statistics: Usman Khawaja, the leading run scorer, four hundred ninety six runs for Australia. Um, Steve Smith second for Australia, two twenty six runs. And then there's a lot of um, good contributions from. Alex Carey, 179 runs, two half centuries. Good for him. Green, 155 runs. Labashane, 170 runs. And David Warner, 169 runs. Probably the only disappointment was Travis Head, 68 runs at 23. But, yeah, generally a, a pretty good series with the bat for Australia with everyone kind of chipping in apart from Head. Yeah, and highlighted by Kawaja, as you say. And the bowling, Cummins, we talked about, 12 wickets at 22.5, extraordinary. I mean, Stark, eight wickets at 34 is actually pretty good. Um, you know, that's a, it doesn't sound great, but on those pitches, that's not bad. Lion, as we said, 12 wickets at 44.9. Um, Green, just the three wickets that average 57, but bowled well and contained well at times. Swepson is the one that's um, disappointing. Two wickets at 133. Yes, he did have a, some, he, he had some bad luck. There's no doubt about that. Numerous, several catches dropped. He had that plum LBW given not out and then couldn't be overturned on review because of that um, asinine rule that if the player is more than three metres outside the, the, the crease, you can't, um, you know, the, the technology can't overrule, which is just moronic, that law. But despite all that, I think that Swepson has not had a great start to his test career and um, might not figure in the Australian test side so much going forward. I would like to see Swepson go to Sri Lanka and be given another chance on pitches that turn, um, but I'm not as confident I was about his um, chances at test level um, before the series. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it was it was a tough start for him. Um, yeah, no doubt. So, yeah. Uh, just on Stark, you know, those eight wickets at 34, you know, he, he you know, his strike rate was the second best of all the bowlers, and he actually did bowl a couple of spells that, that – sort of justified his inclusion. I agree. I, I didn't agree. I didn't mention that uh, he got Rizwan out in the first innings of the third test with just an unplayable ball that was angling in and then just straightened. And, you know, when he does, when he shows that ability, like he had a great tour of Sri Lanka last time. I think he, he could be devastating there again. Yeah, and I, I said I would have preferred Hazelwood. I still think Hazelwood might have bowled even better, but I agree with you. I think that Stark... Uh, ultimately, um, he gets a tick for the series and um, well bowled in, in very difficult conditions. And just finally, I just want to um, pay tribute to some fantastic Pakistan batting. I loved Abdullah Shafiq, 250s, 100. I think he was a revelation. I'd seen him bat in the PSL and knew he was a talent, but wasn't sure whether he could translate that to test level, but he was exceptional. Baba Azam, 390 runs that marathon innings to save the second test match. I've got a lot of respect for him. And um, Imam Al-Haq, um, two centuries in the first match, I thought he showed a lot of promise. And Azhar Ali's class, but, yeah, really good batting to watch from Pakistan. Yep, I, I agree with that. Um, and I'm just sort of lining up. I've got three can't-let-it-goes. Um, just quickly, 
Numbers one and two are because I messaged you the other day and said, look, I'm really a bit bored by the whole discussion of the uh, – when David Warner had the discussion with the umpires about stepping in the protected area <laughs> and also debate about whether Cummins' great catch was a catch or not. I said, can we just – you know, if you really want to talk about him, I will, but otherwise let's get let him go through to the keeper. And you said, oh, now we're definitely going to talk about him. So I've gone and prepared, and then we haven't talked about them. So I'm going to bloody well talk about them. Um, <laughs> firstly, um, David Warner, if you didn't see it, was batting out of his crease and got told by the umpires, you're stepping into the protected area, and you've got to stop doing that. And Warner said, wait a minute, what do you mean? And they said, after you play your shot, um, you're sort of in the protected area. So when you're starting to run, your foot is then landing in the protected area. That's the sort of section of the pitch that no one's allowed to step on because they want to not have the, the pitch destroyed by footmarks. And he said, what, do you, what, am I, what am I expected to do? I play my shot, I finish in the protected area, and that's, that's okay. Am I expected to sort of wheel back and then run around? And they sort of said, well, yeah, and that's what the laws say. And everyone's been saying, oh, you know, the umpires showed no common sense. The umpires don't get to show um, common sense. They actually have to say, um, in accordance to what the rules say. And the laws say two things. Um, one, the striker shall not adopt a stance in the protected area or so close to it that frequent encroachment is inevitable. That's one point. But the more salient point is um, it is unfair to cause deliberate or avoidable damage to the pitch. If the striker enters the protected area in playing or playing at the ball, he must move from it immediately thereafter. The umpires are just enforcing the laws of the game. That's what they have to do. They have to enforce them. Warner basically said to them, oh, you know, well, show me in the laws where it says it as if he wasn't going to do it until they said that. The umpires always know the laws better than the players. I don't necessarily agree with that, but they were just, in, they were just enforcing the laws. So I think that's a pretty definitive um, view on that point. Yeah, I just thought it wasn't a lot of common sense, but uh, I'm not going to get into the weeds with it. I just thought, like, Warner just appeared to like follow through on his shot and I've never heard or seen another umpire do anything similar. And I've been watching cricket for you know 30 odd years. Yeah. But the, the fact is that it very rarely requires batters to bat that far out of their crease. Um, and, you know, as I said, they don't get to choose common sense. I mean, common sense would say late in the day, oh, it's fine. Let's keep on playing. They have to say, if the light is deemed a certain level, we have to go off. Like they, they're constrained by, um, the actual laws. And finally, the other one, uh, Cummins took a fantastic catch off his own bowling and Jeff Lemon made the point that as great a catch as it was, it should have actually been given not out because of the fact that the law requires that the, um, the fielder have control of the ball and also total, uh, I've got it written here, um, that he must have... Um, Um, yeah, that a catch ends when a fielder obtains complete control over the ball and his own movement. So the fact that he threw the ball up in the air before he had complete control over his own movement actually means that probably that catch should have been struck down, which would have been horrendously disappointing, but I think probably factually right. Um, and lastly, uh, umpire Raza asked, Shane, uh, asked Nathan Lyon towards the end to give a wave to a friend of his in the crowd. Barrett Sunderason tweeted this out. And I just think that was a symbolic gesture of how lovely it was that the 88 Australia tour of Pakistan, 60 minutes were called in because the Australians are so unhappy about the umpiring and there was a threat to leave the tour. Uh, I think it confirms what a great job the umpires did and also what a great thing it is that DRS exists to enable these um, matches to be played in much better spirit.
Yeah, well said. Um, I was at um, Headingley when Herschel Gibbs spilled that catch, and uh, you cannot compare the two situations. Good catch by Cummins. And, uh, yeah, he didn't do a Herschel Gibbs. Well, Paul, Although, I think well, that's... Well, great, great argument, Ben, is with that. No, you, you, just by stating the opposite to me without, you know, actually addressing my argument. That's not how you win an argument, dude. Well, I think I thought you had to have control over the dis- further disposal of the ball. So did I. Um, and then L- Lemon tweeted it out, and I looked it up, and he has quoted the laws chapter and verse. It's in the laws and the playing conditions. Well, Cummins had control of his movement. He rolled to the left. It was Cummins knew what he was doing. It was like he's, uh, it was, uh, yeah, absolutely, he had control. He doesn't have complete well, control over his own movement. If you had said, if you say to me, and I'm standing on the ground, stay still, I can stay still. If you say jump, I can jump. At the moment that Pat Cummins threw the ball up, he, if you said stop moving, he couldn't have because he was tumbling through the air. He didn't have control of himself. But I think he was controlling the movement through the air. It wasn't like an accident. He didn't fall over. He, he dived to the left. Um, anyway, look, you're right. They were, they're boring topics. You were right the first time when you sent me the text message. <laughs> well, you should have just said, yes, we won't talk about them. <laughs> it was late. It was late. Um, it was early. It was 10 a.m. Yeah, they're late for me. Um, <laughs> all righty. Well, um, look, we better wrap it up. We've been going almost an hour. Um, Australia 1-0 series winners in Pakistan. Uh, amazing stuff. Um, you've been listening to the Cricket Unfiltered podcast. I'm Andrew Mensel, and you've been with... Paul Dennett. On Florida's Space Coast, we think you can have the best of both worlds. Kind of like right now. Driving. At your desk. Maybe at the gym. But you're also grooving to some music. Visit us and you'll go to the beach. And see a rocket launch. Or go kayaking and manatee spotting. It's all waiting for you on the only beach that doubles as a launch pad. Plan your adventure today at visitspacecoast.com. Sports Social Podcast Network.